Welcome back to the Talk Hard Podcast. You're listening to part B of our chat with Ned Perry, where we go through the second half of his journey through life and football so far. Obviously then the Latrobe job came up in 2010, didn't it? Is that something that you knew was coming up or was it something that was sprung on you or were you contacted about that? Um, well, into 2009, I, I wanted to get back into coaching um, and I was in for the Penguin job. Uh, interviewed for the Penguin job. The look, it went really well. Uh, very professional. Kim Miles, Gary Carpenter, Adrian Dicker. Uh, there's a couple others there. We, we spoke and talked. And Look, I had the job. I had the job, but uh, Jason Link also put in for the job. And I rang Kim Miles and I said, look, I, I thought about it and I said, look, you're better off appointing Jason Link. He's a Penguin boy. He may have a uh, better opportunity to drag some players from Bernie. It'll make your, your club stronger. Um, and I said, if Lingy doesn't get the job, he may go and play statewide, and you can't afford to lose him because Lingy's a good man, good football person, very smart. And I rang Jason Ling up and said, look, I've pushed you forward. I'm not going to go for it. You need to put your hand up. Yeah. So at that stage, though, you didn't have any other jobs on the did, horizon. You did, just felt that it was the right thing to do? Oh, I did. I, did. I really did. So that was, might have been on a Monday. Uh, on the Wednesday, um, I was out walking my dog and uh, I got a phone call from Peter Freshney. And uh, he just said to me, uh, <clears throat> we'd like to sit down and have a talk to you about where you think Latrobe's at. And I got on the front foot because I wanted to coach. And the Latrobe came up. Bang. I said, so are you ringing me up to ask me whether I'd be interested in coaching Latrobe? But he said, no, 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 no. No, no, no. He said, I just want to sit down and talk to you about where you think the Latrobe Football Club is at the moment. Because they hadn't had a coach that time. I think they might have had a coach, but because of work commitments, um, he, he couldn't do it. And I said to Peter Freshney, do you want me to coach the tribe? I said, well, I can't make that decision. I said, you've got 24 hours. <laughs> so you interviewed him. <laughs> you've got 24 hours to get back to me and tell me whether you want me to coach this or not. Yeah. Anyway, the next night, Peter rang me. and said, look, can you come up for an interview? And I did say it because the tribe and Devonport at that particular time, the tribe didn't like Dale Perry and Dale Perry didn't like the tribe. There was a fierce rivalry but that was broken a little bit because Matthew Lang made a coach Latrobe the mm. previous two years but Latrobe and Debord have built up a really strong role we, um, Ashley Brown you know built it up and same as me two combative persons uh, really good for football and uh, I just went up there and I said at the interview look if you want me to coach I need to know within the next 24 hours because it's getting late I, I've come to an interview I don't want any of this Debord Latrobe bullshit if you want me to coach you think I'm the man for it because I said to them if you want to you want to bring the premiership I'll get you there. A guy said, "Well, you haven't, co- you didn't coach Devonport. To, to, you didn't coach Devonport. You lost three. So you go through that three years and have a look when we'll be the better side." You know, I, and I told him the same story. Oh five, oh four. You should have made it in 04, I said to this guy. Anyway, I went home. I said, "I want to know in an hour. I want to know in an hour whether you want me to coach for the tribe." And he said to me, "Oh, we need to speak to some players." I said, "No, nah, if you're going to let players make big decisions like this, I don't want a part of it." And within an hour, they rang me and said, do you want the job? I said, absolutely want the job. And I was very fortunate that I took the job on and Ricky Slatter and Peter Freshney were at the hill of the tribe then. They wanted to get back 
to making a trade, and always use the word relevant, they wanted to get back to being relevant. Yep. And it was a great time. It was, I was very fortunate. I was coach of a side that was being run by two very good men, two very smart men, and they had a very, very strong ladies' committee, women's committee. So going out there on the Thursday night, Ben, and I'm seeing the place packed with, with supporters, and it was just a really good environment. Yep. Picked that up straight away. So I was going to say, like you said to them, that you know, if you want success and you want premierships, I'll, I'll bring you that. So what did you see that you thought, yep, this is going to work if I take well, this job? With the statewide league clubs still out of the competition, it, I just thought that Latrobe were in the best position. Penguin were between Burnie and um, Alston. Very, very hard to recruit. Uh, unless you come from Burnie like Jason Lee did, and he pulled some players from Burnie. And I looked at Latrobe, and I, I used to go through the country players that were playing in the country at that particular time, and there was a group of players. And I was confident that I could get three or four ex-players from Deadport, and I did. I got uh, Nick Bonchill, Nathan Bonchill, uh, Brent Charlesworth, uh, Matthew Schoenover. And then uh, Josh Holland rang me up um, and said to me, are you coaching Latrobe? I said, I think I am. So what was your relationship with Josh? Had you coached him before? Or? Josh made his debut at Deadwood under me in um, 2000. Okay. Josh was a Mariner player yeah. then, and when he wasn't playing Mariners, he was playing with Deadwood. And you know, I let Josh go back to the trial. I said, look, we're not going to do any good here. He had an opportunity to play uh, in a premiership side uh, with, a, in, in, with a group of players in, in the town that he grew up in. But Josh said, if you coach the trial, I'll come back. Well, you know, Josh Holm was a great player. And, uh, you know, it just built from there. We, we trained really hard. It was completely different than Devonport. I, I tried to turn them into Devonport in regards to training. The first question I always ask when I go to a new club, Alston won the Premiership the year before, and I said, what do you think the Alston Football Club thinks of the Tribe Football Club? Uh, front runners. Uh, don't run games out, you know, all, the players answer the questions themselves. And then I, I, I said, well, you know what the opposition think about you. We've got to set to work, and if we want to become the best, we can't keep doing what the rest are doing. We need to train harder. And it was really hard to try and incorporate three nights a week, but the players accepted the challenge, and we went to three nights a week. And it was, yeah, it was a really... Uh, great journey. 2010, we went in and uh, a lot of the pundits had us finishing around about fourth because Penguin were the favourites along with East Devonport. So East Devonport had beaten the previous year, been beaten by Smithton. Darren Matheson, uh, sorry, Scotty Matheson was coaching at least at that time, and um, they, you know, they were going to be one of the clubs to decide to beat. Well, we played them a Good Friday at um, East Devonport. And I can remember the late Craig Richardson, great Easterbrook man. I'd see him quite a bit over the, over the summer. And I used to say to him, we're going to need to kick with the breeze for three quarters to beat you blokes. And, you know, Craig pumping up. And uh, Anyway, we come out and we, we absolutely belted Easterbrook, James Westcombe, Josh Holland. They kicked 10 goals between them from the centre. Really oiled machine that day. And uh, I can remember Craig Richardson coming to me after the game with that look of dismay in his eyes and said, you suck me in. Mm. And uh, look, we, we, we won our first 10 or 11 games that year, set ourselves up for a, a really good final series, lost some games late because we upped our Andy at training. But look, 
got through and uh, yeah broke a 32 year drought yep so just talk to you just to go back a step just about your, your club culture and stuff did you have to change certain things about the culture in the club to get oh, success no no not not a lot not a lot uh, look they had some really good uh, players uh, men Matthew Langmate was there uh, Gavin Woodcock was there Adam Stevenson was there Adam Jeffrey were there good 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 people uh, good men but it was look any time you get a group of people especially footballers you get three types you get energizers you get neutrals and you get sponges now the energizers are the players that give attitude and effort regardless of the weather they come to training regardless of the weather they play football regardless of what the scoreboard says they go to the next con- contest regardless of whether they've been beaten in the last contest that's what you want more of at your club. Then you've got your sponges that will get a kick. If they get a kick early, they're up and about, they're running around. Um, if it's wet, they might come to training. Always find an excuse. So you've got to get more energizers. So the neutrals that are sitting there come over to the energizers and you get rid of the sponges. And that's and Latrobe didn't have any sponges. And I was really fortunate that we had a lot of energizers. They were hungry, because I used to say to them, we, we're capable, we're capable, we're capable. we just got to train harder. We've got to be better than the opposition. We've got to be ready. And uh, look, it was fantastic. You talk about club cultures, you know, what, what, what's a club culture? A good club culture. The best way of describing a good club culture is, I'll give you a bad club culture. Bad behavior, crowd and players, uh, low retention, uh, low volunteers, um, community connection and then you go to a good culture you're able to retain your players and try we're able to do that um, you, you, an open and honest uh, culture uh, forum your your retention's high your connection with your community's high uh, and that's and Latrobe were a very very good club the, the, the town businesses connected uh, the women connected it was just a really good football club it was a really good time to be involved at Latrobe. I was part of a group of many, many people that made it a powerhouse. Yep. And, yeah, I was going to talk to you about that. Obviously, it was 70, 73 years. No, not it was 1973, so it was 35 years or 30, something. I think it might have been 32 years when when, when, the, when the great Darrell Wardock coached them to their last premiership. Yeah, so obviously they've been starved of success. Just tell us about the feeling of, of playing your part in bringing success back to Latrobe Footy Club and how that felt. I can remember um, saying after the game in my victory speech, uh, there were a lot of excellent tribe people in there, and I said, it doesn't matter whether you played one game or a hundred games, whether you're a best and fairest winner or you're a reserve player. When you put the Latrobe jumper on, you have helped create the, the, the history and the culture of this football club. And today, these players were representing every one of you guys and we got the job done and i just said to the players look it's something that they'll never forget you know they'll 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 take it to the grave with them you know that's and that's what being a premiership player does especially at a club that hadn't that hasn't been successful or wasn't successful for a long period of time and it was really really hard to, to change that but we had to train harder than the opposition. Yep. So that was the main change that you brought in? Absolutely. And look, every coach is different. I've got my programs that I run. 
again I'm really big on high intensity workouts I don't worry about the 1Ks I'm really big on running as fast as you can for 20 seconds and 20 seconds rest so I'm all about uh, run to rest ratio all that and I used to call it basketball running and then the high intensity come through but short powerful stuff and there was never any issues with our with our fitness in any of the sides that I coached yep and obviously you, you had a lot of success you know there were further premierships in that outlet trade but would you say it was the first one does that feel the most special out of them all or oh uh, it's different. 2011, we went back to back, and it's really hard to go back to back because you win a premiership. Everyone's aware of what, who you are. You come out every week and sideslip that 10, 15, 20% to, to, beat, to beat you. Uh, so 11 was special. Yep. Um, and then I could notice just a little bit of a fall off uh, from the attention, uh, from, uh, I wouldn't say application or commitment, but it was just a fall off and it was a fall off that, that I noticed and look I'll be honest I, I, I was a very hard coach uh, always honest I never used to portray a player in front of anyone but there are times where I used to have really honest conversations with players one on one if they chose to, to pass on what, what was discussed well that was up to them but I understand that I was a really hard taskmaster but remember I didn't want to be the best coach I just wanted to coach the best team you only get a small span of your life to play football. I used to say this to the class all the time. You only get a small span of your life to play football. So there's nothing better than memory. That's all you've got when you're finished. Mm. So while you're able to, and while you're fit enough to, you need to be able to produce your best. Because we're, we're all humans, we're all, we're all competitors. Um, and look, 2012, uh, 2011, sorry, it was, yeah, it was, we went back to back in a wonderful grand final. We beat a very good Penguin side mm. by four points. There was trouble with the scoreboard. I can remember saying to my team manager, Roscoe Stevenson, are you sure that scoreboard's right? That's right, yeah. I said, are you sure it's right? Yeah, no, 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 Ned, we're seven points up. We're seven points up. Because that was the old scoreboard, wasn't it, when they had to manually yeah, put the yeah, numbers Yeah, we run out of ones. We <laughs> run out of ones. But it was just a game. It was like an Indian. It was an Indian arm wrestle. They gained ascendancy. They had us on our knees, and we'd get it back, and they'd, they'd be on their knees. It was just a wonderful game of football. And look, sitting back to watch Josh Holland and Brad McDonald go head-to-head, it was just an unbelievable clash. Mm. It was football at its purest, and yeah, I couldn't sit back and watch them, but look, I've watched. I've only watched uh, one DVD, and that was that grand final, and just to watch those two go, it was just a, a phenomenal uh, matchup. 2012, we... We uh, when you were the favourites, Shannon Bakes, and look, we lost the grand final that year to Shannon Bakes. And if I wanted to lose to anyone, look, coaches don't coach against coaches; it's teams versus team. But Shannon Bakes is a great man, positive man, very similar to King Jackson, always positive. Uh, Shannon and I still make contact, and uh, he coached a very, very good Wingard side. We beat Wingard in the second semi final over at Girdleston Park. We beat them by a point in a very high standard game. They had to play Penguin at Girdleston Park again in the pre-final, so they'd done some travelling through the finals. And they were a long way down at three-quarter time. They pushed Greg Charmer onto the ball, and they beat a Penguin side that had suffered some really bad injuries through that game. And coming in, we played Wynion. We beat, I think we'd beaten them every time throughout the year. And I you know, always said to the players, grand finals are always different. They're different games, different set of circumstances. Just because we won before doesn't mean anything. And we kicked... We were 13 points down at three-quarter time. Last quarter, we had the first eight scoring shots at goal, and we kicked seven points. 
And then when you kicked the goal and spoke out about, so I think we'll beat by eleven points. Yep. So bad kicking, bad football, but congratulations. But congratulations to win you. Yep. And so then you bounced back pretty quickly though, didn't you? Back to the next year you had success again. Well, believe it or not, two thousand thirteen ended up well, but it didn't start off really well. Yeah. I was gonna say, did you have to get the guys up after losing that grand final? Was there anything different that you did going into that year? Um yeah, it was. Um the first step I sat down with Ricky Slatter and we said, Ricky Slatter asked me, who's the best player playing in the opposition club that we need to get to Latrobe? And I said, Rodney Coughlin. He was the type of player that I wanted. Unfortunately, Rodney had uh, signed a contract with East Devonport. Anyway, we pursued Rodney Coggs and we were fortunate enough to get him over to Latrobe. Now, what Rodney Coughlin done when he came to Latrobe and gave Josh Holland another challenge. Now, to see Josh Holland and Rodney Coglin run and compete through the pre-season, it dragged the players up with them. It was another Brad McDonald josh Holland um, match. They used to drive one another, um, and Rodney Coglin ended up being best on the ground that year in the grand final. was superb. Rodney Coglin and Josh Holland finished one and two in the Bulldog medal. So... But 2013, usually after Australian Day, Australia Day, uh, players come back and we all get together and train. That's that's a, that's a norm now. But our numbers were low. Ricky Slater pulled off a masterstroke. He got Matthew Lloyd to come and play for Latrobe round one of the East Devonport Good Friday up at Latrobe. It was a masterstroke. Uh, bigger crowd round one that was the previous year in the grand final when we played Winyard. So there was nearly 5,000 people up at Latrobe round one. And what that done, it got the ball rolling for us as a football club, as a football side, and we went through the season undefeated. It was just a phenomenal feat. If you'd have said that end of February, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> but Rodney Coughlin, and then we got Matthew Lloyd, and it just started the ball rolling. Plus, I'm not signaling at those two guys. We the commitment and the work ethic of, of the rest of the group was was, was, was I was. I'm proud now to sit back and, and acknowledge the work that those players did. Yep. And so 2014 was your last year with Latrobe, wasn't it? It was. Yep. Um, went through the season undefeated. And look, in hindsight, I probably should have went then um, because, look, I just think there's a, a, a real time frame for a local coach now. After so my, you should have left after 13, I, you reckon? I, I believe that. Okay. I believe that, I think. I believe that. Anyway, we went through 2014. Um, 2014 was, was really rocky. We weren't fit. It was the first time in my life that I could say that a side that a coach weren't fit, but just couldn't get players to train. Our first night game was v Olston at Olston. Uh, we got beat by about 10 or 11 points. And I thought, you know, you know, there's a lot of scope there. A lot of scope there. But look, we just done enough to finish fourth. I think we finished fourth. Beat Penguin in a in an elimination final at Latrobe. Uh, now that game was uh, caused a lot of, of trouble for me, and was that fiery? The police were called at halftime. Yeah. So it was a really fiery game. And uh, did you know it was going to be? This is what disappoints me. I, I got suspended after that game for four weeks because of comments made in the local paper. Back then, the umpires used to come round and speak to the players and coaches in the change rooms, just to, you know, get that 
how you going? I'm just trying to get that little bit of spirit going. And anyway, I informed uh, one particular umpire. I said, look, rumour by heard, this is what's going to happen. They're going to warm up down our wind. Um, and this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Well, it happened. Brawl before the game started. And it just kept evolving and evolving. And look, unfortunately, spectators became involved. And mm. yeah, it was really... It was a dangerous place. It felt dangerous. It really felt dangerous. Police came up. We got through that. Uh, I had to go through uh, a week of, oh, I suppose, shouldn't turmoil, I suppose, which took the focus off our next game, which was against Olsen over Girlson Park in the pre-final. Uh, but, um, yeah, I got my suspension lifted. I was able to go out and, and coach because I had to make an apology uh, to the umpires. And, so did uh, you feel that they lost control of the game, did you? Was that... Absolutely, yeah. uh, absolutely. And I did say uh, to the tribunal um, that that year umpires used to send out feedback form. You'd have to feed umpires to umpire. And in my feedback, always positive. And I, umpire X maybe should have spoke a little bit more to the players just to appease them a little bit. And I tried to call the umpire coach that particular year four or five times. Nothing come back. And the umpires that particular day, I didn't think were the best umpires in the competition that year. We were asked to rate the umpires. They were nowhere near my list, but the umpired. And, um, yeah, I felt the wrath. Uh, I was suspended four weeks, uh, and I didn't front the tribunal. Mm. And obviously that made headlines, and um, I got some lawyers involved and went to the tribunal, and I felt sorry for Andrew Richardson. The, the tribunal... And the NFL, they had to make a stand. They couldn't have umpires um, being abused in the paper. Well, mm. It wasn't abusive, it was constructive. If I'd lost the game, that would have been called sour grace. But won the game, and I, I spoke what a lot of coaches thought that year. And uh, look, yeah, it was it was really unsettling. But uh, do I regret it? Um, not really, not really, because. Some see me as an umpire basher, but I'm not an umpire basher. I just think players, coaches, umpires, all accountable in the game. In the world today, mental health is an issue which thankfully more and more people are becoming aware of and comfortable speaking about. When choosing a professional to help you, what kind of service would you be looking for? At Lonvara, when asked to describe Mel Purcell's service, clients described it as real, compassionate, empowering, friendly, welcoming inner strength building, a positive, safe, supportive environment, and she was described by one source as an absolute legend who enables change with love. Mel offers clinical counselling, hypnotherapy, and a professional service which is tailored to the individual. She has a personal approach and makes sure each client's experience is authentic to their needs while also ensuring full confidentiality. Winner of the 2022 Australian Allied Health Awards for Rural and Remote Excellence, you can self-refer or through your GP mental health care plan. Lonvara, believing in you. And so, obviously, the the next week was that a that was a preliminary final in two thousand fourteen. Yes, complete pre-final. Olsen yep. came out again. I got in trouble again after that. Uh, we won the first quarter, three or four goals. But Olsen came home, and I was asked after the game, "How do you think Olsen will go?" And I just I was being honest. I said, "I don't reckon I get within twelve goals to win yet." Well, out you know, out come all the. Dale Perry haters and you know poor sport they're coming up against a winged side that only we were the only side we, we, we happened to come a draw with winged at Latrobe 
they didn't suffer any losses. Didn't go through the season undefeated either, Brenda, but we, we come a draw and I said, they're going to have to play better than what they did today. I, you know, I think when you win by 12 goals, because when you were a very good side, Kate mm-hmm. Weirable. Well, we were beaten by 107 points in 2004. Olsen were beaten by 115 points yep. in 2014. So, you know, I didn't come back out the next week, so I told you so. It was just, they asked my opinion. And I was honest. And so obviously then chose to leave at the end of 2014. Was that still like you're feeling through the year? Was that always going to happen um, or was uh, it a bit uh, of a... It was. Um, Ricky Slater and, and Peter Freshney spoke to me uh, two or three times throughout the year. And Ricky Slater and, and Peter Freshney, very good people, businessmen, um, understand. And they said, look, I think um, this will be your last year. I said, yeah, no worries. Uh, at first I was a little bit... Um, you know, wow, you know, five games in um, from an undefeated season and, you know, they want to move on. But I can understand it fully because uh, they wanted to keep the success of the football club going. And um, so at the end of 2014, um, you know, I parted ways with the tribe. It was very sad uh, because they accepted me and my family with open arms. I, I really enjoyed the tribe. I've been very fortunate, uh, Brendan, in all my football career I've been involved with three, three very, very good football clubs, yep. Devonport, La Trobe, and East Devonport. So I feel very fortunate in that regard. Yeah, and just just last thing on on La Trobe. Then um, there's a a beautiful picture of you and Daryl Baldock after that 2010 yeah. Grand Final. Can you talk about your relationship with him and what influences he had on you? Uh, he's been massive, and I went back to 1997. There was a knock at my door, and it was Daryl Bullocks standing on the back step of my place. Come in, we had a cup of tea. And he said to me, you're going to be the next Premier coach at Devonport. You're going to be the next Premiership coach at Devonport. He said, you've got, you've got what it takes. This is coming from Doc. Anyway, he went out and walked, and then I went to East Devonport the next year. And in 2010, um, he had his book launch in 2010. We caught up again and he came over to me and said, you've got to win this one, Ned. You've got to win this one, boy. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I, I know, Doc. He said, this is your best chance of winning one. You cannot lose this. And then, uh, look, unfortunately, Doc couldn't make it because he was in hospital. And so I went up to see him the next day. And uh, I didn't know the press when that were going to be there. And the press were there. And uh, they took that picture and that was, look, straight off the cuff. That was uh, front page of the Australian. Mm. Justin Platt called me on the Monday morning and said, Ned, you're never going to believe this. I've just walked into a cafe. Bikes <laughs> reading the Australian paper, newspaper. You're planted on the front with Daryl Bordon. <laughs> because St Kilda uh, that year, they were also in a grand final. Yeah. So, But look, Doc was an amazing... Um, he was good friends with my dad. Uh, my dad played football with Doc. But... Uh, as I said, I'll never forget that speech he made in the grand final down at the Oval here when they were in the middle of their four grand finals in a row. And, uh, yeah, Doc showed faith in me. And it, it was just wonderful to catch up with him on that um, on that Sunday. Yeah. did Like, obviously, he didn't sort of talk a, a heck of a lot, but could you sense how important it was for him to to see another oh, premiership yeah. at La Trobe? Because he, obviously, his health was sort of starting to yeah. fail a little bit. Look, he was very emotional. Uh, you know, tears in his eye had meant something to him. Don't get tears in your eye and get emotional when it doesn't mean anything to you. And uh, yeah, Doc was emotional. He was yeah, 
and it got that carpeting held. It was, it was terrific. That is the only photo that I've got. Uh, in all my footy career, I've got one photo, and, and that's it. My wife, uh, she got it for me 50th, and uh, that's the only photo that I've got up. Yeah, fantastic. So the next year after 2014 then, you ended up back at East Devonport again. Was that something that again sort of came out of the blue or did uh, you have a bit of an idea they were looking for a coach? No, or? it came out of the blue. Uh, Leon, my brother, was involved with East Devonport at that particular time. Leon's one of the best football football operators around. Um, uh, he coached Wessie Valda back-to-back flags and look, if he was a coach, if he had the time to coach, he would have been a very, very successful coach. And... Uh, he spoke about the need for his Tevin board, they're in trouble and blah, blah, blah. You know, can you come along and try and help us out of the quagmire? And I went and went and got interviewed and I went away and I changed my mind two or three times. Yep. I, I just I just didn't know whether I wanted to do it or not because if you're going to jump into a new brand or a new club, you had to be committed. Yeah. And so uh, it wasn't the same as a Latrobe one. You didn't sort of see straight away that, hang on, this is... Oh, no, I knew there was a lot of work because yeah, yep. Ross Harris had done a power work the year before, hadn't won a game, um, had that bad behaviour, that bad culture I was talking about. Um, so, look, I took the job on and we won five games the first year that we were there. I was there in 2015 and we just missed out on playing finals. And... But the trouble with East Devonport at that particular time, we just didn't have the depth. So where at Devonport and Trove, I was able to reward players with senior games because their form was good. I was playing players senior games because I didn't have nothing to come through. They were the only guys that were capable or training. And that really tells in a football club. As far as off-ground, East Devonport was superb. You know, the Sue Milbournes, the Graham Waltons, those types of people, you couldn't get better people. They worked tirelessly, but it just the players just didn't commit. And I always used to tell a story to the players. You remind me of a, a person going to a supermarket. A young family moved into a supermarket, bought a new business. You go in there with a the trolley, and you know that because they're new and they can't afford cameras, you go in and you shoplift. Pay for your groceries, you walk out. You know it's wrong but you keep going back and doing it. You guys know what's wrong not training, but you keep doing it. And look, it started to turn in 2016. We, Our last part of the year, we started to really gel on, and the work that they put in is starting to pay dividends. And we made a final against Wingard, down at Wingard, and our first 11 scoring shots were 11 points. So we were at 0 and 11. Um, we might have been one goal 12 at half time. Had all the play, all the opportunities, uh, but just couldn't convert. Came out, we won the third term, hit the front the last term. And I was always confident that if we beat Winyard at Winyard, we could beat Olsen at Olsen, even though Olsen had beat us quite convincingly under Junior that year. I was always confident that something could happen. But wasn't the case. We turned the ball over late and they hit the front and uh, it finished that. So 2016, but they got a taste of it. And I said, well, hopefully, go back to my dead more days, they've got a taste of it, they've got a feel of it, they understand you work hard, you get rewarded. Yep. And, uh, yep, yeah, so we went, got out of 2016, eagerly looking forward to 2017. Yep. You had a massive health scare 
before 2017 season, didn't you? You got some, I did. some news about your health. I did. Um, on the eve of 2017, I was uh, diagnosed with cancer. Um, and I was... Had you been ill sort of leading no, up to it? No, no. And look, through the 2016 season, the East Hemel Football Club had some men health workshops um, that they that they ran. And there was five or six different stations. And this done that, that done that. And, and I can always remember uh, that if you see something that shouldn't you shouldn't see, get onto it straight away. And I've seen something that I shouldn't have seen. Um, and... I said, oh, I made an appointment to see the doctor the next day and uh, they thought it was something else. And went back the following day and, yeah, still there, thought it was something else. And then I went and had a ultrasound, a, a, a scan, and that was on the Friday. I was supposed to go back the following week and I got a phone call Friday evening to say that the doctor wants to see you on the Monday. And, okay, me and Janine were out gardening and uh, she said, why did you get a phone call? They want to see me Monday. Oh, I thought you had an appointment Wednesday. So, well, I didn't think anything of it. She said, get back on the phone and see what's going on. So they said, oh, no, 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 I just want to see you Monday. So they wanted to see me at 11 o'clock. So I went up there early at 10 o'clock because I had to go to a, a good friend's funeral. He passed away. Um, so I was up there and my, and my wife came into the doctor's surgery. I said, oh, what, what are you doing here? She said, oh, so this has been going on there for three weeks. I just want to get it sorted. She said, obviously, I reckon she's Googled it. Anyway, the doctors come out and <laughs> said, Mr. Perry. So I got walked, walked over and said, how are you? I said, yeah, good. She walked up the passage and she turned to me and she said, now listen, have you got someone in the waiting room that you'd like to bring in with you? I said, oh, 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 oh. Anyway, I went back and called Janine in and uh, we sat down and she said, there's no way around this. Unfortunately, Mr. Perry, you've got cancer. And, uh, yeah, well... I was stunned, to, to say the least, because Janine had just lost a dad a month before that, and, you know, there's a lot of things going on, and uh, that was on the Monday morning, and uh, 10 minutes later, uh, I had an appointment to see the surgeon, the specialist in Launceston, that same night, so uh, on the same day, 6 o'clock Monday evening, I was in Launceston. Tuesday, I was in the hospital, all the scans and the dye, and then Wednesday I was operated on. Yeah. And then I had to go back 14 days later, and this is right on the eve of footy season. This is the first day of 2017, the football season. And I had to go back 14 days later to get the results, and uh, he just said, look, it's not what we thought it was. Uh, we've got to go back in again. So I had to go back in hospital the next day and uh, start everything again, and... And I had to go back in two weeks later, another one, um, and then three months for surveillance, six months surveillance. Uh, now I'm out to twelve months now, so yeah, I'm yeah, in a good place. But when people say cancer, Brendan, you don't go out and read a script, breathe ten times, drink seven hundred and fifty ml of water, go for a walk. But it's it's new, it's frightening, it's it's scary, and you know, I was lucky I had really good support from from the family and from, from the football club. Is it hard to sort of put into words how it feels when someone does tell you you've got cancer? Oh, it, it is, it is. Because um, my dad died of cancer and um, here I am at 55, fairly healthy, and no symptoms, bang like that. And you know, I just said, wow, Janine and I had just come back from Vietnam. 
and to be told that you had cancer and then um, yeah it was, it was a complete shock and terrifying it plays horrific it plays horrific things on your mind I, I can't use horrific it's, it's a real drainer and so what I done was I went about I probably went a little bit pedantic as the wife said but I changed everything completely read up and done this and done that and yeah slowly but surely um, got stronger mentally um, and yeah I'm you know I, I feel very fortunate I'm still alive and uh, but unfortunately Brendan uh, there are a lot of people out and about in the community that are going through the same battles that I've gone through um, either uh, themselves or loved ones and eight people a day in Tasmania get diagnosed with cancer and the key to anyone that listens to this is get in and get it early yep that was what saved you you think getting it early well it is it is it is Um, it's funny because I was in the surgery one day I used to work in employment at that stage and uh, I was out in the factory checking on some of my workers and uh, a girl that was in the office said I was saying you're the doctor's surgery so yeah just going for a checkup and she said yeah, I said, well, what was you doing there? Oh, my husband's didn't go to the doctor in time, and now he's got to have this mate. And it was the same thing as me, and I said, oh, shit, mm. you know. So, but no, look, as I said, it's 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 really important that if you don't feel well or you see something you shouldn't see, uh, that you, you act on it very, very quickly. Mm. Yeah, don't be too proud to go. Absolutely. Um, as far as Clubland goes, did you tell anyone at the footy club and how did you juggle your commitments during your treatment and things? Um, well, look, I made sure that I was in hospital uh, when I was able to get some days off from yep. uh, football. Leon was, uh, my brother Leon was really strong at that particular time for me. Um, sometimes I don't know whether the players thought that I probably lost the passion, but I just wasn't able to do it. And in the end... Um, <coughs> Then the 2017, I was tired. Uh, I, I was uh, forever compromising what I, what I was really strong on. And I can remember one night at selection, I tipped 17. I picked 17 players. And poor Sue Milbourne, lovely lady, she'd done the power work at her simple. I respect her immensely. She came to me and she said, listen, you've only named 17. I said, that's all i got. I'm not going to play three players for the sake of playing three players. I said, well, <clears throat> Anyway, what I'd done was I named Dale, Perry, Leon, Perry and Des Webb. Mm. <laughs> so they were the three players I named. I did, get, I did get some text messages the next day, but that was that was the stage that I was at. I just couldn't be bothered. And um, so, yeah, that was where I was at at the end of 2017. I was tired, but the, the club understood. And look, my time um, at East Timble had come to an end. And look, never ever run the players And It's good to see some of the players now, but I tried like Sam Grease fulfilling his potential. Uh, Jack Triffitt's back playing into NFL football. It's terrific. You know, he's a really good player to coach. Uh, Stewie Carter's up at La Trobe, which is really good. He won the best and fairest under me. Uh, Sam Bulleen and them sort of guys are still playing footy, so, you know, it's terrific. They, they were good guys, but they just didn't have the, the, the depth and the pressure to transform them into better players. Yeah, yeah, so you need that pressure from people sort of pushing Absolutely. up from underneath you, Absolutely. don't you, to keep you on yep. the ball. Yep. Um, just last one on your on your cancer. How would you say it's changed your outlook on life? Um, well, I it's probably made me a little bit uh, more wary of uh, little things. Um, you've only got one body, and if you look after it, 
Um, nine times out of ten, look, it doesn't discriminate, unfortunately, cancer. But mm. nine times out of ten, if you look after your body, you look after yourself, you can remain fit. So, um, you know, I, I regard myself as being pretty fit for a 62-year-old. So yeah. any spare time that I've got, and this is what I talked about right at the start, I've got a really good balance now, uh, great home life, uh, and I love my grandkids, uh, Oscar and Murphy, um, two completely different kids, uh, and I just love them to death, and I just enjoy their company, and I think they enjoy Pop's company, and, uh, yeah, we, we love to walk and watch the boats and... You know, Sunday morning we got to my na- my mum's place, uh, Nanny Bird, and we have curry egg sandwiches for lunch up, up home on a Saturday. And Oscar likes the fire going. He calls that the volcano. It's 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 a really really um, I'm in a really good place because I've got two grandkids that I love dearly. Awesome. They keep you young, don't they? They do. <laughs> um, just obviously that was the end of your, your coaching um, tenure. Do you still get people asking you to coach? Do you still have offers out there? Or? Um, look, I was asked to coach a side three years ago, yep. uh, a senior side, and I went through the interview process, uh, but unfortunately my health at that time buggered up again, and there were there was... A batch of three weeks where I was going to be, I was I was going to be out of action because of where I was going to go to the hospital and then the follow up and all that type of thing. So I couldn't commit. Now that was the closest I got. And just uh, as far as your philosophies and things on on coaching, you you've you've had success everywhere. And I know, like some people will say, if you don't win a premiership, you, yeah. that's not successful. I think that's bullshit. But I think Ross Lyon's a really good example of this year. Like he's pretty much got the same list, if not worse, than St Kilda had last year with their injuries and things, and he's completely turned it around. So the coach plays a massive part. I always thought, you know, if you throw the coach out, then that's not going to make any difference because you still got the same cattle on the park. But what's your fundamental philosophy on on coaching? Can you sort of put it down to a couple of key things? Well, it's really important that you forge strong relationships with your players <laughs> because there are going to be times where you're going to pat them on the bum, and there are going to be times where you break their heart. So you, to have a relationship with your players, you can deliver the good and the bad. It's really important that you set a plan and you follow it. I was really rigid in how I coach football. I believe to win more games for football, you need to be good with your ball use, you need to be good with the contested ball, and you need to be good with your pressure. Now, structure come along a little bit later, but it's very hard at this level, at NWFL level, to get structure simply because of work commitments and getting players here all, all, all together. But they were four pillars. Very, very, it's very important to have an open and an honest culture. And it's really important that you appreciate everyone within a football club, whether it's a guy at the gate, it's a guy behind the hamburger stand, canteen, it's because... Those are the people that make a football club. Players are so lucky. They wear, they're able to wear the jumper, the colours that represent the town and the club. Uh, they get seen. They get recognised. But it's all those behind the scenes, uh, the gatekeeper, the guy in the canteen. That's, that's so important. And I always, always make sure that they knew that I valued their input. Yep. And it's probably hard because I, you know, as far as talking about yourself as a coach. But what would you say was your main strength? What were you, what were you best at? If you take all those things that you just spoke about, what would you say that you were, well, a, a, probably at the elite level at? 
my planning. I I was I done homework and look, I learned that from Max Brown. Um, you know, you, you've got to know your enemy, and I was all, always about negate and exploit. So how do I negate the opposition's strength? How do I exploit their weakness? And I just used to find a way. But I was really big. I said on ball movement. So guys that played under me uh, and trained under me, um, they understood the way that we wanted to play. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Look, I was very fortunate to be sometimes at the right place at the right time. Yep. Yeah, that plays a little bit of a part, it doesn't does. it? It does, it does. Yeah. And uh, through your journey, obviously you've been a leader and you've been exposed to a lot of leaders um, through, through your journey. And one thing that does come up quite often through the pod of different people that I've talked to, I've talked to a lot of people about leadership. And as I say, you know, you've been on the inner sanctum of a lot of different clubs. So I'm assuming you've seen some bad leaders and you've seen some really good leaders. Can you tell us what distinguishes in your eyes the good leaders yeah. from the bad leaders? I think a, a good leader... Has to, have, has to have the courage to be himself. It's really important. Um, he's he's got to have a connection with the group. He's got to know the group. Um, he's got to know the players. He's got to have an honesty and attitude that doesn't waver. It, that's why it's tough to be a leader because being a leader is good when it's going right, okay. Um, but when things aren't going well, that's when your leaders have to step up. You could fluff it all around. You can stretch it and change it and mould it but at the end of the day for me a leader is some someone that sees something that's not fixed and they fix it they go about and they fix it they don't walk past it they fix it yep. and I was look I've been very lucky to have some good leaders all with different traits uh, Shane Smith was a great leader at Denmark when I first started Denmark uh, unfortunately had a backing tree uh, Matthew Langmaid was a really intelligent uh, guy Mark Lowe was a driven, hard bastard. No one liked Lowe, but he he drove the standards that needed to be done that had to get them more up the top. So he held people accountable. He, he did. He's he, he, a great leader. Uh, uh, Gavin Woodcock was very similar at Latrobe. Uh, uh, Josh Holland, uh, uh, just a great player. So he let his football do his talking. As he become more accustomed to the role so too did his uh, vocabulary yeah, the way that he was able to speak to the players uh, Kurt Hazel was a good leader like Josh Holland used to lead from the front and when he spoke players listened so yeah. you know I've been very very fortunate to um, have some really good captains yep and just as far as coaching you've got to be a bit of a chameleon and be able to speak to people with a lot of different personalities and traits and things like that and just you know when I was thinking back through the players that you've coached you know you've coached um, Clint Viney, Kurt Hazelwood, um, you know, you mentioned Josh Holland, Gavin Woodcock. There's a lot of different personalities. Adam Jeffrey in there. Like, you can't speak to them all exactly the same no, and give no. them all the same sort of treatment, can you? How do you go about that? Well, that's that's one of the, the uh, that's one of the strengths that a football coach has to pick up pretty quickly who you can speak to and who you can't. I'll give an example. Rhys Colbeck uh, played with Denmark, big centre-half forward. Um, really good player. Didn't fulfil his potential, but look, he... he Great man, great football. I could go up to Therese and absolutely barrel him. Stephen Flint was the same at Latrobe. I could absolutely barrel him. And then you had Andrew Taylor, a big, strong bull. Um, Andrew was a type of bloke, similar to Gavin Woodcock, that you had to treat differently. But look, everyone's different. Uh, everyone's got different things that tick their box. And as a coach, you've got to recognise that, understand that, and uh, appreciate that. So, you know, but that, that was different. But some players, could, you could go up and absolutely stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them and point the finger at the chest. 
and others you had to go about it a different way. Yeah. Does it take long to learn that about a player, did you find, or did you have to um, put effort into learning that quickly about a new player that uh, you coach? One, one thing I, I, I always said to myself that I would never do, I would never single out a player in front of a group. Yep. Because if you've done that, you, you're dead meat. You know, you, if you keep kicking a dog, it's not going to come out of the kennel. And if I had to say something to a player that needed to be said, I would always speak to him one-on-one. But I would never embarrass a player in front of his teammates and mates. Yeah. Um, last couple of questions. Just the, These are the footy program questions I'm going to throw at you now. Who's the best that you've seen and why? Who are the ones that spring to mind? I'll give you two or three if you like. Oh, look, I... I if you go back to my first year coaching, Craig Muir, uh, he pulled 13 BOGs um, in what they call the Bulldog Middle now, but in over two medals. So he pulled 13 BOGs in 18 games, had a great year. Yep. Josh Holland Josh should have won four Darrow Bulldog medals. Um, Rodney Collins, a favourite player of mine. Uh, Matthew Langmaid, uh, Taylor Haley, Mark Lowe, Kurt Hazelwood, you know, you, you just got uh, Gavin Woodcock, uh, Adam Jeffrey was a great player, just a great contributor. Uh, you know, you had a lot of foot soldiers, so it's it's different. You, you got your A graders and you got your foot soldiers, but the A graders can't win it without the foot soldiers, and the yep. foot soldiers can't win it without the A graders. Yep. So you just got to make sure that your A graders and foot soldiers are energisers. And the sponges, you piss off out of it. <laughs> and yeah, you talk talk about your your A graders and your and your sponges and things. So if you, this doesn't have to be an A grader, but if you were going into a grand final tomorrow, who would be the first player that you would have picked from your time coaching? Oh, jeez, you put me on spot there. I forgot to put Darren Benham in that group of players too, and James Westcombe. Look, this is what happens. I go home and I think, jeez, <laughs> um, Matthew Lang, mate. I think um, Dumpy. Uh, Big game player. James Weskin was a big game player. Massive, massive big game player. Josh Holland, big game player. Yeah. Um, Shane Smith would have loved to have got him in a big game because so he wouldn't let you down. So they're, they're, they're leaders, they're, they're traits. That, yeah, they're very, very good players. Yeah. Who did you find was the toughest coach to coach against? Uh, as I said, you don't coach against coaches, you coach against teams. But look, yep. Mick McGon was only in Tasmania for two years, but he changed the way coaches coached. Yep. He was a guy that used to push four or five in a huddle under the scoreboard, the Oval. And we played Bernie one year. What's going on here? You know, and I pushed four over there, because the old back then was one on one. It opened up the corridor, opened up, opened up the fat side. So Bernie kicked to the fat side. The four players he had over there were quick. Yep. First of all, kick a goal. Uh, so I admired what Mick McGowan uh, done to coaching. I admire Max Brown immensely, and my admiration for Max even grew more when he took on Devonport, when they um, uh, well, they sacked the coach down here mid-season and, and they weren't travelling real well and, and Max took them that year and the following year he took on a side that was really struggling. So my admiration grew for Max. And for anyone to coach nearly 300 games of footy, you've got to have something going for you because uh, Max, Max stood the test of time. And look, locally, uh, I can't be more impressed with Kurt Byard. He keeps everything simple. Uh, he never gets flustered. He has the ability to keep Devon board in the moment. They never concern themselves about the big win that they had last week. They never, they never concern themselves as players about losing that last contest. 
He's just got that ability to keep them in the moment. Love the way Bo Sharman's doing things at Wingard. You know, he's gone down to Wingard. Wingard have been up for nearly a decade, which is a phenomenal effort at local level. And I just think the way that he goes about what he does, it's it's terrific. And, you know, what I coach both those players. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I was part of Stephen French's um, coaching journey, two years under Meet Latrobe. Uh, and Nick Isaias at Latrobe. You know, I love what he's doing with Latrobe now. I love the, the real clear, defined game plan that they've got up at Latrobe. And that's what I love watching. And, you know, I coached Nick, so it's it's terrific to see these young coaches now coming through, yep. stamping their mark on their, on the football clubs that they're coaching. This episode of the pod wouldn't be possible without the support of Alex, Sammy and the team at Shearwater Health and Fitness. Everyone needs a little bit of help and support at times, especially when it comes to health and wellness. Not only is Shearwater Health and Fitness supporting the Talk Hard podcast, but more importantly, they're committed to providing Shearwater and the surrounding community with a premium quality health and wellness facility. If you've been looking to take the first step or even the next step in your health and wellness journey, they provide a full-class timetable, 24-7 gym, infrared sauna, Norma Tech recovery boots and a massage therapist. Something for everyone, whether you're a high-performance athlete, mum, dad or just someone wanting to help be the best version of yourself. Call in and see them at 24 Shearwater Boulevard, which is right next door to the IGA, or you can check them out on Instagram and Facebook for all the details. And you say you love to go and watch, so you're in a pretty good vantage point now because you're calling the games, aren't you? So I do. How did you get into that? Well, when when my footy career finished as a coach, I got a phone call from Doc in March to see whether I'd work in special comments. I said, oh, you look, yeah, no worries. And uh, so why? I went down, worked the first four or five weeks as a special comments. And then one particular game, Brian Payne was unavailable. and went to go down to Smithton. So Doc Hancock come down with me with the, with the late great Ian Wright. Went to sit in the, the club rooms at, at, at Smithton where you broadcast the game. And Doc had the headphones on. Ian Wright had the headphones on and I'm in the middle. So I used to pass them over when uh, it was my turn to make special comments. And Doc was sitting there like this. Can't see Ned. <laughs> so I just took the headphones off and started. It was uh, Circular Head versus East Devonport. And I've been commentating ever since. So yeah. it gives me an opportunity to stay involved. Um, to see the game, I love watching the young kids. There's some, so much talent coming on, on the coast, and uh, yes, yeah, just gives me an opportunity to, to be involved in a game that I really and truly love. Yeah, how hard is it commentating a game of football? Very hard. Um, <laughs> did you have to learn, or did you have any training to go? No, into it? no, no, no training. But you got to do your homework. You got to know the players. But unfortunately, I uh, do say what I feel. And uh, you know, some like it and some don't. Yeah. But that's unfortunately well not that's how it was when I coached. Yeah. And how much preparation do you put in then? Do you sort of spend time doing notes oh, prior to a game? Absolutely then, I spend well, tomorrow Ping will be once I get to watch a site three or four times and get to watch how a player moves, you get to know them, but sometimes you uh, the advantage point that you're at, you, you, you can't really see the play. Especially at this time of year when play starts at 2.20, it does get very dark at 4 o'clock. So yeah. when you get older, you, you go bald and you go grey, but you also lose your eyesight yeah. too. So it is hard, but no, I really enjoy it. Um, look, I get a lot of uh, positive feedback, especially from, from those that can't go and watch it. So people say, oh, you know, I like to let the people that are sitting back at home with a cup of coffee and a tin tan biscuit feel like they're at the game. So, you know, that's what I say, in front of the grandstand, in front of the boozer, forward pocket. I just want them to visualise the ground, 
and be able to sit back and think that they're there. I think it's great for local footy too because local footy still is one of the rarities where they can bring their car in and sit around the outside. So you see like some of the, the older people sitting in their car watching the game and they've got the radio that's on right. as well. So that's you're right. actually still bringing them into yeah, the game that, as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you were fortunate enough to be able to call Devonport's most recent two flags. Was that a bit of a thrill for you? Did you? It was. Um, look, I did get emotional. Uh, when they beat Wynyard down at Wynyard uh, in a second semi-final, uh, just to see the way that that football club had prospered and grown, um, I was, I did, I, I, I nearly broke down on the radar because I was so proud of them because it was a really tough game of football. Was that before their first that, flag it, of the it last It was. Uh, yeah. Look, they beat, obviously, winning their, winning their first flag um, for a long time. I made the call that this flag will make them, not break them. Uh, they've changed the the one club policy down here is, you know, they don't pay money out. It's it's money and all in. And it's a, and it's a concept now that other Clubs along the coast are following, yeah. And Devonport have done a marvellous job. The, the local, it's it's a great culture. We talked about culture before. It's a, it's players that aren't getting games here, playing seconds, would get senior games at any other club. They don't leave simply because it's a good place to be. Yeah. And that you know that comes down to uh, Jared Innes and Mark Lowe, uh, Kurt Boyard, and the senior players. Um, it's you know I was here for, down there for a couple of years before this year, helping them out of a Tuesday and Thursday night when they when they needed help and. It's just a great place to be. Yeah. Yep. So you took a bit of satisfaction out of Cernum, get the oh, absolutely. Get across the line. Absolutely. After... And to see, you know, those fortunate enough to play in a premiership, they won down there after the, their, their first grand final win was terrific. And yep. uh, yeah, it was just terrific. And, and look, it's going to be a good, it's going to have to be a good side to beat Devon again this year. Yeah. Mate, we're nearly finished. Um, we could have a chat about the Tasmanian team in the AFL. We probably need a whole other podcast for yes, that. So yes, <laughs> we yes. might follow up with that one as well later on down the track. But um, over your journey, what would you say is the best piece of advice that you've been given and who did it come from? There's no finishing line in football. Yeah. Uh, look, if I've got one word of advice for any coaches that are listening, enjoy the good times. Unfortunately, I was unable to sit back and look back and enjoy the momentum times, the, the good times. I was, I was always frightened of defeat and it just didn't allow me to sit back and enjoy the good times. So it was always won a grand final and basically on the Monday I'm, I'm going forward. So I, I needed to sit back and enjoy the good times. But... There's no finishing line in football. <laughs> just keep going. And again, just talking about your self-doubt and things that you've had over over your time, can you sort of pinpoint any particular solutions that you could give to someone that was having those same sort of doubts or low times that they were going through? Anything that really worked well for you? Uh, look, uh, uh, the self-doubt started with me uh, when I first started coaching, simply because, as I said, I didn't have that 200-game uh, player triple best and fairest or triple premiership player. So I really had to start from the bottom. I had to earn respect. And you've got to do that anyway, but there are just some elements that, uh, you know, I thought, well, what's this, this bloke doing coaching them Borton? And, you know, in different ways and means, like I knew what they, where they were coming from, but other people didn't see it. And and you work your way through. But I always say to myself, if you're going to put the work in, then don't you back away from anything. You've got to have the courage to be yourself 
and all the work and preparation and all the things that, that I missed out on um, because I sat down and done this and done that and done make it worthwhile. So if you're going to involve yourself uh, as a coach, you need to commit fully to make sure that the players you've got underneath you become the best they can be because that's why you've been appointed coach. Yeah. Well, mate, that's pretty much all the questions that I've got for you. I think I got through most of them. I had about four pages worth, which is probably <laughs> the most that I've had for, for anyone. But I, I really appreciate your time. Like I said, it, it was one, like it's been a big thrill for me to be able to sit down from a selfish point of view and, and chat to you because it was one that I know, you know, once I started, I didn't stop harassing you until you decided to, to come on. But it took me a while to get to that stage because it's funny, like when you were talking about what makes you successful, I would imagine that, um, with your personality and the way you are, you're a straight straight shooter. I imagine a lot of your players didn't want to let you down, and I think that was probably part of why I was sort of hesitant to get you on because I thought, well, am I going to do you justice by being on here? So I'm hoping that that's the case with people that thoroughly enjoyed it. With people that listen to it, mate, and I, I you know, I thank you for being yourself and being honest and, and forthright. Like you say, you might get a bit of feedback, positive or otherwise, but. There's a lot of good messages that'll that'll come out of that for people, and another really good one that I like, and one that only came up, you know, when we were talking about you coming on, was that self doubt. And I think it's a really good thing that even the people that look the strongest on the outside and, and have that aura and that presence, as as you certainly do, everyone has doubts. You know, nobody has it their own way every day of their life. Everyone's got things that they've got to work through. So. I appreciate you taking the time, mate, to have a chat to us. And, yeah, all the best for, you, for the future with your calling and, and with the grandkids. Thanks very much, man. It's been my pleasure. What a privilege to be able to sit down with Ned and learn about his learnings, philosophies and stories of life and football. There was plenty in there, not just for football followers, but also anyone in a leadership position I'm sure would have been able to take plenty of notes from that story. As we continually touched on, the fact that someone with a persona like Ned can have demons, doubts and challenges along the journey, it shows that no one gets it their own way all the time. It's a matter of how you deal with those demons and adversities, and hopefully anyone going through similar struggles takes some learnings from this great story. Whether you agree with someone's opinion or not, you have to admire someone in this day and age who speaks openly and honestly from their experiences as that's all we should ask of someone. I thank Ned for his time and as I said personally it was a real highlight of my time doing the pod to be able to spend some time chatting with him. As Northwest Tassie is a remote area I just want to quickly tell you about a great organisation doing their bit to help the rural community deal with mental health and suicide. Rural Alive and Well, or better known as RAW, R-A-W, have a mission to build healthy and resilient rural and remote communities to reduce the prevalence of suicide. RAW specialises in providing a proactive outreach and one-on-one support service which addresses situational stresses and increases protective factors to minimise the risk of suicide. RAW is non-clinical, genuine and non-intrusive. The service is confidential with no fees for participants and it uses a person-centred shared goals approach. RAW adopts a culturally sensitive, strength-based and collaborative approach to delivering services. Their team come from a range of backgrounds and receive training and ongoing support to provide evidence-informed care to people. To access their services, call 1800 729 827. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram or jump on their website www.rawtas.com.au.